Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission, 7 billion fulfilled people, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Cal Newport. Cal graduated from Dartmouth College, earned his PhD from MIT in 2009 and is now an Associate Professor of Computer Science at Georgetown University, where he explores the theoretical foundations of our digital age. He also writes about the impact of these technologies on the world of work. His most recent book, Deep Work, argues that focus is the new IQ in the knowledge, in the knowledge economy and that individuals who cultivate their ability to concentrate without distraction will thrive. On publication, Deep Work became an instant Wall Street Journal bestseller. Cal's previous book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, argues that follow your passion is bad advice. Cal, thanks so much for being here. Sure, happy to do it. One of the things I heard you mention is that like, mental health experts on college campuses have described how since the rise of smartphones and social media, there's been an absolute explosion of anxiety-related disorders among their students, haven't there? Yeah, there has been. And in fact... From what I hear, there's going to be a, a new book and some new press you're going to see. And you might want to look at uh, the recent Atlantic Monthly cover story to, to hear about the coming wave of evidence that this is worse than we thought, that the mental health issues that are tied to the generation that came up with smartphones and is just in college now is probably even worse than we thought, if not unprecedented. Because, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean you mentioned like, there's, there's so many different bits of research. One bit that I heard. Um, a while ago, I think it actually came up in, in a previous interview, but I heard you reference it is, I mean, we know from research that the more you use social media, the more likely you are to feel lonely and isolated and uh, lonely and isolated. That's just one example, isn't it? Yeah. So there, there's the, there's the social aspects of being lonely and isolated. You see other people, you see other people seemingly having more fun or what you're being left out of. There's also some sort of neural wiring mismatch going on because we're, we're very acute to communicating with people and sociality. Our brain is very sensitive about it. It wasn't made, however, to be thrown into a world where you could have a device that keeps you constantly connected to people, this sort of persistent low-grade connection on, on text messages and tweets and emails, uh, Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is that people use to communicate. And we also have evidence that's essentially short-circuiting the brain. Right? We're, we're very sensitive to hey, someone's talking to me, I need to pay attention to them, this is a, a fellow member of my tribe. But if you can have conversations going on constantly and persistently, your brain fritzes out. It's like, oh my God, all the time there's people I'm following, I have to follow this conversation, that conversation, I gotta talk to this person. It essentially wears out the brain, which also we think might have something to do with growing senses of mental unease or anxiety. I'm just saying, what, what, can, you, what can you do about it? Because on, on the one hand, I mean, your, your TED talk was titled, Quit Social Media. But I mean, like, how, I mean, are we in too deep? How likely? I mean, obviously on individual people, but how likely is that? You know, do you think people are actually going to move away from this, or is that is that even is that realistic? So here's the here's the easier challenge. Easier challenge. Take 30 days. I used to say take 30 days, stop using social media, and people got afraid because they they have various positive use cases. Mm. I get this value out of it. I need this type of information. I'm a part of this group or whatever. So here's my moderated challenge: take it off of your phone for 30 days. So you're not losing, you're not losing any of the access to whatever it is, the very important uses you have for social media. You can still open up your laptop. You can still log into Facebook and, and, and get the information you get a need. It's just, you can't do it all the time. Mm. And it can't be a, a sort of persistent presence in your life, wherever you are out in the world. It's something that you have to do a little bit more intentionally. I'm now going to go log on to Facebook on my computer to check in on this Facebook group. That's important to me. And what I've found is that when I do this, a lot of people will do this experiment and when you make it just a little bit more difficult, 
to use social media. Like they can't just hit a button. They have to type in a password. They find that they never use some of these services. And some of these services, they would have told you, I absolutely need this in my life or bad things will happen. You put a little hurdle. Okay, you have to type in some things or open a laptop and suddenly they go 30 days and they never used it. So this is my new moderated challenge. You don't have to quit anything, but take the apps off your phone and see how much you still end up using it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. You, it's... Um... I can actually like that day. I mean, if, if people watching video, like, so this is, this is my phone at the moment. It's like this old, it. this old beat up Nokia. And, um, it happened probably like, uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, my phone, my, my iPhone just broke. And so this was just my replacement, uh, while I was waiting for a new one. And it was, God, it was so annoying. Like no Google maps, no like anything. And it was like so frustrating. And then by the time my new iPhone arrived, I actually, I haven't used it. So I haven't had a smartphone for a year and a half because it was literally that two or three weeks of this is so frustrating. And then suddenly it was like, oh my God, I just, it was so Zen. So like, it was like this massive weight had been just lifted off. And so I didn't consciously try and do it. It was just an accident through my phone breaking, but it was yeah. probably one of the best accidents that I think has ever happened. And likewise, I've still got, you know, access, I've still got a laptop. So I'm not like pretending technology doesn't exist, but you're kind of accessing it on a way which is, you know, where it's not following you around 24 hours a day. Yeah, which is often the confusion that, that people make is and, and I think that the tech companies like this confusion. Mm. They want to confuse the technology and what it can bring with access to the technology. So they'll, they'll, they'll try to confuse the, the issue of not having 100 percent access to their websites all the time, no matter where you are, with whether or not their websites are useful. And they try to mix it all up. So if you say, well, I don't know if it's healthy to be checking this app a thousand times a day everywhere you are. They'll come back and say, oh, you're saying that we shouldn't have this technology and we shouldn't use the Internet to connect to people. Well, that's not good. How can you defend that? Because they're confusing the how you use the technology with the values you get out of the technology. So this is really the easiest thing you can do is exactly what you did mm. is, OK, if there's valuable network tools and websites or what have you that, that I might need in my life, that's fine. But I just don't want it in my life when I'm sitting there in the bathroom or <laughs> waiting in line. I just won't have it on my phone. I'll log onto a computer. I can do it a few times a day. And as you said, it can be a, a, a massive change to your mental state when you, when you disconnect your brain from that, that constant stimuli that we're not wired for. Yeah, I think yeah, I think use the word um use the word value, which I think is is key because I think being actually conscious, asking yourself this question, like, is this adding value? Is it not? Like the way I use this, you know, does this add value to my life? Yes or no. And if it does, then great, continue. But if, yeah. if it doesn't, then think, okay, how can I tweak it? How can I do it? And actually, rather than just everyone uses it, so you can just feel like this is the way it has to be, actually ask yourself those questions. Like, is this actually adding value to my life? Yeah. And then also, uh, what I think is really important, I've been talking a lot more recently, is don't think about tools monolithically. That is, either I use this or I don't. Instead, you should be thinking very carefully about how do I use it, right? So, so a company like Facebook wants you just to think about using Facebook as a binary thing. Either I'm a Facebook user or I'm not. And then once you're a Facebook user, you just sort of expose yourself to all of the all of the shiny bells and whistles and timelines and features and everything they were trying to throw at you to capture your attention. You're going to use it all the time on your phone. And they want you to see it as just, do you use Facebook or not? Because they bet a lot of people will say, well, I, I can't just not use this service. What I emphasize is it's not just do I use this service or not. It's how exactly do I use this service? So it's not just I use Facebook. It is 
Facebook groups are very important to me. And here's how I use them. It's only on my computer. And I have a plugin into my browser that hides the news feed. So all I can see is the feeds from the groups that I care about. And what I do is every uh, evening after dinner from seven to eight, I like to log in and check in on those groups and participate. So it's not just I use this tool or not. It's I have a particular use case for this tool that I've optimized to get me as much value as possible while sidestepping as much of the negatives as possible. Now, these companies hate that because the <laughs> entire business model is built on we need as many minutes of your eyeballs as possible, right? We have to extract your attention. That's a resource we can extract and, and turn into the, the money. So they want you just to let yourself into their ecosystem and just hit their app all the time and let all the shiny whistles and endless scrolling and badges and notifications capture your mind like a slot machine. And so what I argue is is a more nuanced thing. It's not just does this service add value to me or not? but then dive another layer deeper. What's the specific value this really adds to me? And then how do I want to use this service in such a way that I get that value, I magnify that value, I can revel in that value, but really avoid a lot of the other stuff that might be negative that surrounds it. Yeah, yeah, and no, I, I, I totally agree. Like the, the Facebook one, I was toying a while ago about, should I get rid of it, should I not? And then I realized actually the, um, the way I use it is almost like, because um, I travel quite a lot and meet people from around the world, uh, I use it almost as like my online, like my, my, my Rolodex. So it's like just, I no longer have, don't have a Rolodex, but I just go in maybe like once a week and it's not like for any of like the news feed. It's simply like, okay, you're going to another country. Here's like, you, you, you send a message to that person. Oh, where should we meet in real life? Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's, it's very much transactional as opposed to just spending hours just scrolling through like the endless barrage of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I'm seeing more and more of this. I, I, I call it sometimes the attention economy underground. So we have this whole attention economy that's built around, we'll give you free stuff, but in return, we're going to try to make you addicted and we're going to extract as much of your time as intention as possible. They're basically fracking your brain. We're going to extract <laughs> with high technology as much attention as we can to sell to advertisers and, and other types of marketers. There's this underground movement that's basically saying, I don't want to play in that economy. I don't want my attention to be some resource that's just being uh, aggressively and relentlessly harvested by companies so that, you know, they can whatever, raise a stock price or a small number of venture capitalists can become very rich. And so there's this attention economy underground to say, you know what, I'm going to find out how to get the value out of these free tools without letting you completely exploit my economy and my time and my attention. And so with people like you that are being very careful about their phone, their access, how they use these tools. It's they have rules around how they use it, when they use it, where they use it. And they're really gaming the system. <laughs> you're getting like we're getting great value by having this this easy to use international Rolodex, for example. Mm-hmm. And you're doing so in such a way that you're also not giving the 50 minutes a day that now the average Facebook user gives to the Facebook corporation a value, 50 minutes a day of usage of their their suite of apps. You're not giving them that in return because that's not a fair trade. So you're a part of the attention economy underground where you're saying, you know what, I'm not going to be pushed around. I'm not going to be pushed around by these large companies in Northern California. I'm going to figure out what I want to do. I'm going to get my value and I'm going to sidestep the rest of their sort of diabolical schemes that turn me into one of these sort of matrix like pods where they're just sucking value out of my head like a human battery. So I'm being the hyperbolic, of course, but <laughs> I like what you're doing. You are Morpheus, basically. <laughs> I'll take it. That idea of attention leads on really nicely on the, this idea of sort of deep concentrated work. And I love, I was looking at your blog and you, um, you list a lot of sort of interesting kind of case studies and different ways people work. And one of them is, um, you mentioned is John, John Grisham and his writing habits. Could you maybe just describe 
because I mean, this is probably one of the most prolific, successful writers, you know, um, ever. And, you know, he, he churns out so many books, but surprisingly, he's not working 15 hours a day or something like that. What, what, what does he get? What does he do? Yeah, well, well, Grisham, for example, which is very common among successful writers, uh, you know, even especially fiction writers, he, he doesn't write 20 hours a day. He has a, a set window he writes in the morning and he actually renovated a building. You know, he's a rich guy. So on his grounds of one of his multiple houses, they, they renovated the old it was the old sort of servant's kitchen or something like this. Right. Because he lives on, I don't know, like a plantation, basically. I mean, he lives in the south. Uh, but but it was a building that's only for writing. And they set it up to have no phone and no Internet so he can come in there. And when he's in that building, it's just for writing. And he does a good three or four hard hours of, of writing and then he's done. And you see this common among people who, who make a living using their brain at a very high level is that they respect their ability to concentrate as their tier one skill. And just like a professional athlete is incredibly careful about their health and fitness habits and what they eat and their exercise and everything, professional thinkers at the highest level are very careful about attention, concentration, getting value out of their brain. So they'll do things like this, like have a very special place they go only to write. They'll do it intensely for a a limited but intense period of time with no distractions. And it's an optimal way to produce value. And a lot of what I talk about is how people who are not necessarily – at the very highest elite level of thinkers, like best-selling professional novelist or, or Nobel Prize winning physicist, how they can take those same ideas and apply them to their own knowledge work job and get similar big advantages. I love that because it's, um, I don't know, we, we, we have this idea of, you know, this, this long work day. And I mean, I think the times you mentioned, it, it was between, uh, for Grisham, it was, it, he's finished his writing at 10 a.m. So it's between 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. And then yeah. he's done the majority, the bulk of his writing by, I think, like March. He has a few months, like, doing, you know, tweaking it, but then has about six months, actually, just relaxation, downtime, planning the next, you know, next story. So it's yeah. this idea of, yeah, that intensity, three hours in every morning, finish at 10 a.m., and then you've got the rest of the day just to, just to almost let your, let your brain be. And so you can, it's, it's, that, that intensity, but it doesn't need to be 10 hours, which I just think it's, I think it's so refreshing because it goes against so much of what, you know, got to work hard, you know, the grind, the grind, the grind. You yeah. can be extremely efficient and produce yeah. amazing work, but still do it on your terms. Well, th- well, there's two different types of work, which is, which was what makes this a lot clearer. There's, there's what we can call deep work and that's where you're focused very intensely and you're trying to put your skills to their highest level, produce thing of the highest level of value you're able to produce with your brain. So that's like John Grisham sitting down and trying to write a chapter of his book. And then there's shallow work, which is everything else, which are work efforts that do not require you to focus intensely or use your, your cognitive skills at their highest level. So it's, you know, it's emails and meetings and coffees and PowerPoints and tweaking your social media profile or these other types of things. They're two different things. The way I like to say it is it's, it's deep work, which really moves the needle. So if you work for someone else, Deep work is what's going to get you promoted, whereas shallow work, eh, that's what prevents you from getting fired that day, right? You can't <laughs> ignore the boss's email or not show up at the meeting. If you run your own business, deep work is what's going to push you towards the big acquisition or the 10x growth. Shallow work is maybe what's going to help you make sure that you don't go bankrupt this week, right? Okay, I got to make sure these invoices get sent out. It's not that shallow work is bad, but it's that deep work is what really moves the needle. It's what produces the real value. So it's what's going to ultimately matter for your career. So the right way to think about it is deep work is something you want to protect and that you want to do intensely. It's the core to your career. If you're not doing that, you're stuck. Shallow work is like a necessary evil. 
You know, you want to you want to keep it tamed. You want to be very efficient about how you process it. You want to use principles of minimalism and essentialism to make sure that you're not putting too much shallow work on your plate that's unnecessary. You can't make it go away, but you want to keep it as tame as possible. In other words, you don't want your pride in what did I this was a good work week be based on how much shallow work you did. Sure. You don't want your pride in how did this week go in terms of how busy was I, how late did I work sort of doing the shallow work. The thing that should really make you happy, the thing that should really energize you is I did the deep stuff and I did a lot of it. Plus, I didn't let the shallow stuff drown me. That's the way I like to think about it. And it's the deep, it's the deep stuff which leads to mastery, isn't it? Really mastering something like shallow work, like you said, it's it's it's, it's ticking off to do to do lists. But yeah. the deep work is what really, when you can really hone a craft, that's through the deep work, isn't it? Deep work produces value in the marketplace. By definition, it's rare and valuable. Shallow work, by definition, is not rare and valuable. It's easily replicatable. No one's ever became a millionaire by being really good at answering emails. You have to separate the two. And what happens is we get these sort of general plot lines of like, well, grinding is good. Being busy is good. You got to work hard is good. But if we don't actually nuance what that means, it's easy just to be overwhelmed with shallow work and say, look, I'm busy. I'm doing shallow work all the time. I'm doing shallow work till midnight every night. I mean, I'm busy. I must be doing the right things. But if you're not protecting a deep work, it doesn't matter. So whether you're incredibly you know, relentless about minimizing shallow work, you're know, like John Grisham, you do almost none of it, or you fill your days with shallow work, it doesn't matter in terms of your long-term success. All that really matters for that is the deep work component. So you might as well keep the shallow stuff as well contained as possible. In uh, in researching the book Deep Work, you you know, and I think you've you've continued this afterwards through your blog. But you enjoy tracking down the deep work habits of you know well known and highly accomplished individuals. Do you can you give maybe share some other examples of some of your favorites? Yeah, I mean, because you see a variety in how people integrate deep work into their day. Uh, so one that was unusual, it's, I, I call it the the bimodal method, and, and there's some famous historical thinkers who use it. But the contemporary figure I use as this example is Adam Grant. The, the author and Wharton business professor, he uses this bimodal method where either he's in a period where he's essentially just doing shallow work or he enters a deep work period that can last multiple days in a row. And he's completely off the grid. It's, it's out of office responder on his email. It's as if he's, you know, uh, on a cruise ship somewhere where you can't reach him. <laughs> and so he, he just varies. It's a wild var- variation, right? So either it's my door is open, like uh, I'm constantly interacting. He's sort of famous, you know, give and take, being very available, being very helpful to people. Or for three days, you can't find him, right? He's in witness protection. And he's completely <laughs> undisrupted deep work during that period. So that's his method. Another thing that I've seen become more and more popular, especially among uh, CEOs of small startups, is the monk mode morning. So it's a completely different way of doing it. But it's basically you have a time. It's usually it's 10, 11 or 12 usually. And just everyone you work with knows I'm available starting after that time. I mean, I'm just never going to schedule a call. I'm never going to schedule an interview. I'm never going to do anything before 11 or 12. Like I'm just not don't expect me to answer the emails. Don't expect me to answer the phone. But then I'm around after that and people just learn it and every single morning is monk mode for them they start they lock in they 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 work on their deep stuff and then they have a clear point where they switch over into now i'm i can answer emails is when i schedule meetings it's just a simple heuristic that keeps it clear so you, you can see a whole variety of different strategies for how people fit depth consistently into their life i, I love that i love that it's, it reminds me of um i go for the last maybe two or three years, I have this thing called uh, No Input Tuesdays. And so on Tuesdays, I uh, literally just 
I go somewhere, maybe just go to like a coffee place or somewhere like relaxing and like, you know, and just sit there and just zero input. So like no, no, even no, no music, no phone, no anything. And I just create just like maybe four or five hours of just complete empty space. And the first, maybe like often first hour, two hours, you're just like, you know, what are you doing? You're just not really doing anything. But if I actually look back over the last three or four years, on paper, that looks like just a wasted day. Like, what are you doing? You know, like you're just you're yeah. not doing anything. Yeah. But I'd say the biggest breakthroughs in my business, the bit, the biggest moments of clarity when things are completely clear, the best ideas of the next way forward have always come on those Tuesdays where you just create yeah. that uninterrupted time and space. And that kind of yeah, asks, yeah it reminds me of, of what you were just saying. Yeah. Now imagine if you did that almost every day. Until eleven AM or something. Imagine what you could what what the, the quality yeah, it's, I it's, might it's do. This is I think this has just triggered yeah. a new idea. It's like, okay, I yeah. think <laughs> yeah. but, the, but the magic of monk mode morning is the clarity. Right. Yeah. So so to have a simple rule of like, oh, I just know I don't schedule things before eleven. Mm. Then you don't have to think about it. And so it's a very easy that's why that's becoming popular, is you don't have to have this long thought process about, okay, what am I gonna do with my week? What am I gonna work deeply? What's my schedule look like? You just have this simple heuristic, nothing before eleven, nothing before eleven, and you don't have to think about it. Uh, that there's something in that having that, that extreme clarity. If I just know I, before I touch, you know, a computer each day, I'm just thinking deeply and I, nothing's ever scheduled there. It's very easy for your staff or for your, your, your clients or colleagues to learn. Okay. He's not available before 11. So I, I see that method in particular on the rise right now. I love it. People who multitask all the time can't filter out irrelevancy. Why is that? Right. I mean, so so if your brain, the, the bigger point here is that, you know, if you usually are feeding your brain with stimuli all the time, you're looking at the phone, you're looking at the laptop, you don't like boredom when the show that you're watching on TV gets a little slow, you also have the iPad going. And when the iPad, you can't wait for it to load, you also have the phone going. That type of multiple streams of stimuli that, that, that bathes you in novelty mm. and, and avoids any period where you have absence of novelty has long-term lasting effects on the brain. And you know, people think, okay, well, there's a difference between what I'm doing at night when I'm sitting there with all the different devices and sort of avoiding boredom than what I'm doing the next morning when I've gone to my cabin and I'm trying to think deep thoughts or what have you. But they're connected. I mean, essentially, you're conditioning your brain in such a way that makes it harder to focus deeply if in your time outside of work, you're also exposing yourself constantly to lots of stimuli. The things matter. Just like if you're a professional athlete, what you do outside of the season or outside of the practices matters, right? If when you're at home, you're like, well, I'm not at work anymore. Now I'm going to drink milkshakes and smoke and stay out all night or whatever. It's going to affect you, sure. you know, when the season comes around. It's the same thing with, with cognitive work. So I, I like to, to make the point is your brain is something that has to be, be treated well. You have to keep it fit. And so if you're used to exposing yourself to all these stimuli, even in a non-work atmosphere, it's going to make it harder for various reasons to focus intensely when it comes time to do something important. Since the 1980s onwards, people have been sort of uh, this idea that we all have a passion and that's an intrinsic trait like eye color, height, and that career happiness is basically a matter of introspection. We do our introspection, we discover what our passion is, and then we find a career that matches that passion and then we will be happy. That's kind of what we have, that's kind of the process we've kind of been popularized. Like what, what is wrong with that and why is that not the case? Yeah, I mean, this is an issue I tackled in a, a book I wrote back in 2012 called So Good They Can't Ignore You, where the whole idea of the book was to understand how people end up loving what they do for a living. So it's a very sort of simple premise. Let me go study people who love what they do for a living. Let me look at the research literature. 
let me try to get a clear answer to this question. If you want to end up loving your work, feeling satisfied, feeling happy, what do you do? And the very first thing I found essentially doing this research is that the most dominant answer is exactly what you said, which is, oh, it's all about matching your work to a pre-existing passion, mm. that you have some inborn, innate passions that if you can identify them through introspection and match them to your work, you will love what you're doing for a living. If you get the wrong match, on the other hand, you won't love what you're doing for a living. So the most important things you can do is introspect and match. This completely, this hypothesis, this theory, the strategy completely falls apart under any sort of actual analytical scrutiny. Right? This idea that we have pre-existing passions and matching that to a work is what's going to make us love our work just doesn't hold up if you really look into it. And there, there's two big flaws with it. One, it makes this assumption that most people have clear pre-existing passions that you can identify and use as the foundation of career choices. Most people don't. I mean, we don't have evidence that this is a common thing, especially for young people. This idea that you're just going to find through introspection some sort of career preference that happens to match what the existing economic landscape and job opportunities happen to be at this moment in time is just sort of nonsense. In fact, we have uh, quantitative evidence that says, especially for young people, clear pre-existing passions are very rare. So if you're just telling people, follow your passion, follow your passion, it'll be fine. Most people don't have passions. That advice is incredibly counterproductive. It's impossible to follow if you don't have a clear pre-existing passion. The second problem is, is that it assumes if you really like something and then you match that to a job, you'll really like the job. This also is something we don't have a lot of evidence that is true. I mean, think about all the cliched stories of the passionate, you know, amateur baker who opens a bakery and is miserable, right? It, those cliches alone are enough to tell us that what leads to satisfaction in someone's work is much more complicated than I like this subject. And now my job involves this subject. I will now really like my job. It's much more complicated than that. It has to do with much more complicated factors like autonomy and mastery and connection and impact and creativity. Creating a job of passion and satisfaction is much more complicated than that simple storyline would tell us. And the point I've been making in that book and beyond it is it's worth embracing that complexity. The simple idea that you're meant to do something if you can find out what that is, you'll love your job. We have to get past that simple idea, that sort of Disney movie plot line, that slogan, and embrace the real complexity of how people build satisfaction in their careers. Because once you embrace it, you actually have a good chance of actually getting there. Okay. So you mentioned there, I think you mentioned a few examples, but say autonomy, impact, mastery, connection. So what would be a better approach? Like, you know, if, you're, if you're good at something, it's not necessarily your passion, but you're just good at something, and then you can add being autonomous, you can add it, it makes an impact, you can add a sense of mastery to it, that are you then much more likely to love whatever that is that you're, you're good at? Is that, is that the approach that you'd recommend? Yeah, so here's the way I would think about it. So, so as I mentioned quickly, the, the research is pretty clear that the type of things that make people really satisfied in their jobs, make them really find passion in their work, are those type of traits we just mentioned, like having a real sense of autonomy, you're in control over what you do and why you do it. Having a sense of mastery, you're very good at something that's valued by the world, and it's, you get that clear feedback. Uh, for a lot of people, connection, connection to people's connection to communities, connection to what it is that they're serving, uh, and a sense of impact as well can be very, very important. And for a lot of people, a sense of creativity, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, the sense of I'm creating something new from scratch can be very, very fulfilling. Those five elements are not tied to specific types of work. And so the, the, the key to passion satisfaction is not finding the right job. The key to passion satisfaction is trying to get as many of those elements as possible into your working life. And many, many different types of careers, many, many different types of fields can provide those things. 
the match is not what's important. It's getting those sort of specific work agnostic trades. So the question is, so how do you get autonomy or mastery or impact into your career? It's helpful to think about it in economic terms. Those traits are very desirable. Lots of people want them in their job, right? So there's a market for them. They're, they're valuable traits. If you want them, therefore, you have to have something valuable to offer in return. If you want a lot of autonomy in your career, you want the sense of mastery, you want a sense of real impact or creativity, those are very valuable. They're scarce. If you want them, you need something valuable and scarce to be able to offer in return. The marketplace of jobs does not care that, you know, hey, I'm passionate about this, or I would really, really love a job where I have all these things. Can't I have one now, please? It's a little bit more competitive than that. Okay, if you want these things, what do you have to offer that's rare and valuable in return? So what you see if you study people who love what they do is they almost always begin with this apprenticeship phase where they are honing rare and valuable skills, skills that the marketplace unambiguously values. They then use those skills as their currency to acquire in their career traits like autonomy and a sense of mastery and a sense of impact, a sense of creativity. They, they, they basically make a financial transaction, right? I've built up these skills that are very valuable. I'm now going to take them out for a spin. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to use them as leverage to get these good traits into my career. Satisfaction, passion, fulfillment then grows along with those traits coming into their career. So that's the much more consistent path to passion, fulfillment, and satisfaction in your career. Build up unambiguously rare and valuable skills, then use those skills as leverage to shape your career around those type of general attributes we know makes people passionate. And this is a very different storyline than simply you were born to be a sports social media marketer. And <laughs> once you know that, if you can then find get that job, you're set and you'll be happy going forward. I'm putting you on the spot here, but what is something you believe is true, but you have a hard time trying to convince others of? Uh, oh man, I think all I do these days is I feel like sometimes is trying to convince people. Uh, okay, so here's a big one that uh, I think email and related sort of uh, related communication technologies like Instant Messenger and Slack, in which basically your your identity is yourself and you have an inbox and stuff comes in and out. I think all of that's going to go away in the next 10 or 15 years, for example. So I've been trying to convince people that I think the way we work today, I call it the hyperactive hive mind method, where basically we have an ongoing unstructured conversation with people all day long with messages and Slack and emails. And, and we sort of just figure things out on the fly with unstructured messages back and forth all day long, that that is an arbitrary way to work. It's a very inefficient way to extract value from human brains and that knowledge work is going to move past it. And then we're going to look back at that. Just like we looked at the old factories we used to run before we figured out assembly lines and say, oh, that was so simplistic and inefficient. I can't believe we thought that was the right way to work in the sort of digital knowledge work age. So I'm always trying to convince people we're heading towards a world without email. Just wait and see. And no one can think past it. Like, I don't understand. I can't even imagine what work <laughs> or how I would even do work if I didn't just have the ability just to send messages back and forth to people all day. Cool. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of email. So this is I'm excited. Come bring it on. <laughs> who who are some of your role models? Like you've got you've referenced sort of the ideas of like mastery, like minimalism. So I don't know if it's like you know I've, I've just recently read like Mastery by Robert Greene. I don't know, but like who who have been some of the big influences or role models on on your work? Uh, yeah. So I mean, on my on my work, uh, you know, I have a lot of times I'll have historical role models. I mean, I, I like to extract lessons from the sort of the behavior and actions of sort of historical figures as opposed to necessarily people who write about 
productivity or let me give you know, sort of specific ideas. So the work habits, for example, of Teddy Roosevelt have always been very inspirational to me. Someone who really uh, leveraged intense focus, intense focus applied frequently as the recipe for creating lots of interesting things in the world. He was sort of the master of like a turn it on and focus like a laser on this and turn over to this and focus like a laser like this. And so his sort of intellectual strenuous life uh, was definitely inspirational. Um, you know, as a scientist, there's certainly lots of scientists have been very inspiring to me to see how they've locked in on problems. Basically, when you look at my historical role models, they often are people who have prioritized depth and deep work and intense concentration over about anything else. And by doing so, have created lots of things, real impact and value in the world. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? Well, uh, I mean, professionally speaking, I think a fulfilled life is you're, you're doing something you think is important. You're doing it at a high level and you're doing it on your own terms. I mean, it's kind of like the summary message of all the research I've done on, on career satisfaction. It matters. I'm good at it and I'm doing it on my own, on my own terms. And so my, my, my whole life up to this professional life up to this point has been a, 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 a fight to sort of increasingly realize that a fight that takes the form of honing skills you know trying to trying to earn leverage trying to get better trying to, to relentlessly keep the creep of other things that's not so deep you know out of my life to keep the core skills honing and that's sort of the way i think about the world but that if, at least in professional life i think that's what people should be going for what is one thing our listeners can start doing today that have a positive impact on their lives uh well i mean right now i would say to cultivate a deep work habit could be very important. And, and, and there's a lot of ways to do it, but sort of the, the two simplest things you can do is one, take persistent sources of distraction off your phone, like we talked about before, just so your brain becomes more fit. It has much more experience being bored and being okay with it. You're just sort of setting the foundation for it to be able to concentrate. And then start throwing deep work sessions on your calendar. Treat them like a meeting or appointment. So once it's on the calendar, it's like a doctor's appointment or, or a, a meeting, right? If someone says, hey, can we do something tomorrow at noon and you have a deep work session scheduled, you can say, oh, I have a thing till three. So can we do it afterwards? People are very comfortable with the sort of the language of meetings and appointments, understanding that sometimes is booked and sometimes not. So take persistent sources of distraction off your phone. Start scheduling deep work sessions on your calendar. Protect them like a meeting and appointment. And when you get into those sessions, work on something hard and do it with zero distraction. If you even glance at a phone to see a text message or glance at a web browser, invalidate the session. Just cancel it and move on to something else. So you really want to get practice with what it feels like to spend an hour, two or three completely locked in on one thing. So you do those two things, you'll be surprised a month from now how much more productivity you're finding, how much more fulfillment you're finding, how much more control you're getting over your, your work life. Last but not least, well, I know we're not, I know the answer is not going to be any social media accounts, but how can people find out maybe more about you and your work? Should we send them to the blog or where's the best place? Yeah, I mean, basically the only place I exist online is I have a website, calnewport.com, and I blog on there. I'm a big proponent of blogging. So you can, you can dive back to those archives and see me talking about all, all these different issues and much more. Cal, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you.